I'm Jay Caruso, and this is Closer Consideration. Anti-Semitism. Most of us know it when we see it. It's ugly. It's bigotry. It has an ugly history. There are people who engage in it who don't know that they are, and there are people who engage in it who deny that they're doing it. But what does it mean? And how do you know it when you see it? Who does it affect? Part of that comes down to defining what it means to be Jewish as well. And my guest on this episode of Closer Consideration is Batya Unger-Sargon. She's the deputy opinion editor of Newsweek, and she's also the author of a new book called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. We're going to talk about anti-Semitism, the roots of anti-Semitism, who's impacted by anti-Semitism, and also how it affects Israel and our relations with that country and the surrounding countries in that area. This podcast is brought to you by Ricochet.com. Ricochet.com is a place for conservative conversation and community, as well as plenty of podcasts. You should go to the Ricochet.com, look at the offerings, look at all the podcasts they have. If you join and sign up for a membership, you get your first month free. So if you go over to Ricochet.com slash join, you can go ahead and do that and see what they have to offer. You can listen to this podcast at ricochet.com, but you can also subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And so my guest today on Closer Consideration is Batya Unger-Sargon. Thank you for joining me here on this uh, wonderful, cool afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really, really thrilled to be here with you, Jay. Oh, thanks. Okay, so let's let's start off with a with a like a just a kind of yearbook answer. So if someone was to ask you the question, what is anti-Semitism? You know, how do how do you define anti-Semitism? I know that there's a lot of going into it, but if you could if you were to break it down uh, for someone who was a small child or a puppy and you had to explain <laughs> it to them, how would you how would you how would you explain it? Well, the puppy answer is basically woof, woof. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, when I'm explaining this to people, I like to say that anti-Semitism is just racism against Jews. Now, that's not 100% accurate because Jews are not a race. Jews come in all races, right? There are Latino Jews, there are Black Jews, there are Iranian Jews, you know, there we, we come in all shapes and sizes and colors. Um, so it's not quite right to say racism against Jews. And that's the problem with defining it is that being Jewish, Jewishness is both a religion and a nationality and an ethnicity. Um, and so you could, you know, hate Jews for any of those aspects, right? You could only hate religious Jews. You could only hate Israeli Jews, right? You could only hate one aspect of what makes Jews Jews. Um, but basically, it's discriminating against Jews um, or hatred against Jews that's based on their Jewishness, you know, whatever aspect of that you pick to define them by. And so you, you kind of answered my another question there. And that was I was going to ask you, is it, is it just a religion? Or is it also an ethnicity? I understand it's not a race. 
But explain explain how someone if if someone said how is it the Jewish faith you're Christian that's not an ethnicity if you're Muslim that's not an ethnicity so how do you explain to someone how how being Jewish is an ethnicity? Yeah, see, that's the problem with having been around for two thousand plus years is. <laughs> You take on different, you know, different identities and your uh, identity gets defined in different ways. Um, So, of course, you know, most people understand what it means that there's a Jewish religion, right? There's, you know, the Bible and the Talmud and the oral law. And, you know, there are Jews who still practice that oral tradition, including myself. Um, um, and, And we follow, you know, the practice of being Jewish, which stems from, you know, these texts that are spiritual in nature and are about a relationship with God and relationship with each other. Um, you know, so it's a religion very much like, you know, Islam, very much like Christianity. Um, but a lot of Jews are not religious. In fact, most Jews are not religious. Most Jews in America are Jews of no religion. Uh, most Jews in Israel are not, you know, not religious. <laughs> so um, what does that mean? Like, what are they? What makes them Jewish if they don't practice? Well, they're very, very much Jewish. They're absolutely Jewish. They're Jewish because they're ethnically Jewish. Um, Judaism has traditionally been by, you know, defined by matrilineal descent, although most Jews today consider, you know, uh, uh, um, patrilineal descent, um, descended Jews, Jew, Jewish as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's passed on from parent to child, which makes it an ethnicity, right? It's also a nationality, you know, our oldest texts, you know, the Bible refer to Jews as a people, right? It's a, it's a sort of peoplehood. And, and, you know, for example, people can convert to Judaism, right? You can join the Jewish faith, you can join the Jewish people, and you're no less a Jew for having joined it, for having not been part of that ethnic ethnic definition, that ethnic um, tradition. So you can become Jewish or be Jewish in many different ways, which means that you can hate Jews uh, in many different ways as well. Yeah, so that 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 gets into uh, an issue because we, we hear this a lot of times with other with other uh, minorities. We'll hear it with 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 black people that you you can you can be racist or do racist things without necessarily hating uh black people right i mean it, it, it i know people might be listening to this and might think well that's kind of crazy but i mean if you if you say something if you could say something you say something anti-semitic that comes out it doesn't necessarily mean that you hate jews but you still said something that is anti-semitic and in your experience has that happened to you where somebody has said something that you know is anti-semitic they didn't have necessarily have um they didn't necessarily have hatred in their heart of it, for lack of a better word, when they were saying it. So how then do you kind of distinguish between that when somebody says something or does something that's anti-Semitic that isn't necessarily of the kind of hatred that you might see from neo-Nazis or something like that? It's a great question. So I want to start this answer by saying we are at a time when anti-Semitism is rising, but we are still the luckiest Jews to ever walk planet Earth. So <laughs> it's rising, but it's not catastrophic by any means in America, for sure. In Europe, it's much worse. 
Um, in fact, the only Jews, I always say the only Jews who are luckier than us was us five years ago before it started to rise. Like we're still like Jews are not the number one. The, 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 we are the number one victims of religiously motivated hate crimes. But as you know, person whose grandfather survived the Holocaust and is still alive, thank God, uh, the, I just really still feel like there's really very little for us to complain about. Now, Orthodox Jews have been bearing the brunt of the rise. So for them, it's sort of awful to hear people like me saying, you know, we're still the luckiest Jews alive. Like if you are an Orthodox Jews and you a Jew and you look Jewish, you are much more likely to be subjected to some sort of physical attack. But again, it's just not, I don't want to be alarmist about it. It's rising, but it, this is still, this country is still the most amazing country to ever live in as a Jew. You know, maybe Jews in Israel have it a little bit better, although it's arguable because of course they have like rock, rockets raining down on them from Hamas. Um, so I just want to pre preface everything by saying like, um, I don't know that, I don't want there to, I don't want people to come away from this like with a sense of alarmism. Right. I think the reason it's rising is for the same reason a lot of things are getting worse in America, which is the breakdown of social cohesion and an idea of the common good, which has led to a lot of conspiracy theories on the left and on the right. And anti-Semitism is essentially a conspiracy theory about Jewish power today in many of its manifestations. And so um, that's why it's rising. But it's really, to me, a symptom of a much larger problem in America. And we're not even the primary victims of that symptom of that problem where we're sort of the secondary victims. I would say that the working class is the working class of all races is the number one victim of the loss of the concept of the common good. So I just wanted to get that out there as a, as a preamble um, so people Certainly. understand where I'm coming from. Um, OK, your question was, how do you know if something is anti-Semitic? And can you say something anti-Semitic from a place of liking Jews? You certainly can. Like, yeah, I've had people say to me, like, well, you guys are so good at money, like in an admiring way, <laughs> you know, and like that's, you know, they're trying to be complimentary. And it's like, so, <laughs> well, how do I know it's anti-Semitic? Because, you know, for, you know, 2000 years, people have, have said, you know, Jews, money, money, grubbing, money laundering, you know, the people who, you know, who will charge you interest, which is against the rules, like, which is against Christian law, like and use that as an excuse to abuse us and hate us and kill us. Like, so we are we are <laughs> I say this ironically lucky in that we have a long history of anti-Semitic tropes and caricatures and stereotypes and phrases and images that have led to a lot of violence against Jews. So when people use those tropes, even accidentally, our spidey sense kind of goes up because we're like, oh, the last time we all remember the last time somebody used those same exact tropes and it led to our genocide. Now, obviously, we're not I don't think we're on the verge of being genocided or in danger in that same way. But um, I don't think Jews should have to hold back when they hear people saying things that the last time people said that stuff and were very popular, it was disastrous. Like we should be able to live in a public square where we can say, hey, that's actually an anti-Semitic trope. Please don't speak that way or please don't use that language and hope that people will learn from that. That's good. Let's let's shift a little bit to... We'll come back to, 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 to more of that. But I want to shift to culture. And as you probably know, there's been a big uproar over Dave Chappelle's most recent Netflix <laughs> yes. special, particularly from the LGBTQ, whatever, however many uh, letters and numbers it is at this point. And I'm not saying that mockingly. I'm saying it consistently changes. So that's just the reality of it. Um so 
there obviously there was so much about that they there were some groups like glad that wanted taken down and but there was also some jokes that he made in there about Jews and he relied on the kind of tropes that would be considered anti-Semitic. In fact, I had seen an article uh, from Ruthie Blum, who was uh, John Podhoritz's sister, and she flat out called what he said anti-Semitism. At the same time, however, she was very explicit in saying, no, I'm not going to ask for him to be taken off the air or removed from Netflix or anything like that. But he talked about that he had two jokes that involved something called space Jews. And both of them were these kinds of things where, where you know, the Jews are coming to take over, that kind of thing. And it was, it was almost an kind of allusion to the whole Israeli-Palestine conflict. But that being said, and I listened to commentary, and, and Abe Greenwald and John Podhartz both said that they didn't think that those jokes were funny. But why is the reaction so more muted among the Jewish community for Dave Chappelle's jokes than they are for 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 the LGBT community who are just expressing outrage? Whereas the Jewish community, from what I've seen so far, is kind of like, yeah, that sucked, but eh, whatever. It's such a good question, Jay. Like I also noticed a lot. Like the left and the liberals didn't care that they were anti-Semitic jokes, right? But the conservatives who pointed out that they were anti-Semitic jokes were like, and we're gl- and we believe he should have the right to make them. And it was such a reversal of like what you would have expected, right? You would have expected that the right was on the side of like, you know, this is profanity, you know, you must not speak this way. And the left would be on the side of free speech and like, you know, jokes and culture and dangerous culture, you know, it was such an interesting reversal. Um, I really admired the the people I saw saying, yes, they were anti-Semitic jokes and he had the right to say them, you know, and I don't want to cancel him for them. Um, so the jokes were this. So he, the first one was about, um, he said, um, I want to tell a story about people who live on a planet and they leave that planet to go travel to another planet. And for 2000 years, they go from planet to planet and then things get bad for them on the other planets. And so they come back to the initial planet and basically want to kill everybody who lives there or something like that, mm-hmm. which was, of course, and he says, I want to call it space Jews, meaning it's like the Jews um, left Israel, right? They mm-hmm. went to the diaspora, things got bad for them and they wanted to come back to Israel, right? That's kind of the joke. I don't think that was very, um, I don't think it was funny, but I don't think it was uh, anti-Semitic. I mean, of course, the, you know, the, uh, the, basically the idea is that, you know, they just chose to leave and then they just chose to come back and that they're oppressing the Palestinians. I mean, I didn't think it was funny, but I didn't think it was anti-Semitic. The second one um, I thought was a little bit more anti-Semitic. He said that um, he told a story about um, a, for- a slave in America who bought his way to freedom and then bought some slaves and started, you know, <laughs> um, he had, he had a plantation, right? And he said, um, I call this guy space Jews or something like that. And the idea there is that the Jews were sort of oppressed, right, for all of these years, you know, and then they went back to Israel and started oppressing the Palestinians exactly in the way that they had been oppressed, right? right. That was sort of the, the punchline there. Um, I don't know whether that was anti-Semitic or not. A lot of Jews feel that comparing Jews to Nazis is anti-Semitic. To me, the thing, I mean, I watched the special. Um, I felt offended 
by the by the LGBTQ jokes. I felt offended by the Jewish jokes. I laughed at a lot of the jokes. I'm glad the special exists. I don't think it should be canceled. The thing I felt about the Jewish jokes was I felt like I had learned something about it that I wish I didn't know, mm-hmm. um, which is to say, like, I felt that the the punchlines of the Jewish jokes were much more serious than the punchlines of the other jokes. Like in the other jokes, the punchline is funny. And in these jokes, the punchline was political, you know, so it felt kind of different in right. a different register. And I felt like, ooh, wish I didn't know that about you. But um, but I obviously not wouldn't want it canceled, like want it to exist. But I think that it was very interesting to see the right um, people like your colleague Seth Mandel, who I admire greatly, and others like um, essentially saying like this has you know this is in the realm of culture of art you know this deserves to be enjoyed or not enjoyed like a, a, a comedian has the right to make not funny jokes about <laughs> about Jews um, and I, I think that's how that's how I feel as well. Yeah, I think you make a good point. Stand up comedy is an art. And art is often going to offend people. It, 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 people will find some of it offensive. And I, I think I laughed at the first Space Jews joke. I don't think I laughed at the second. I did laugh at the first, but then, of course, it's like one of those things where you find yourself kind of laughing and saying, should I be laughing at that? Is that supposed, right. to, is that supposed <laughs> to be funny? Um, but it, it happens. I, would just, I just found it interesting that the reaction, obviously he spent more time talking about the LGBTQ stuff, but at the same time there was just, there didn't seem to be this wave of anger directed at him in the same way. Yeah, nobody that, cared. Yeah, yeah, nobody really nobody cared. cared. And it happens. And the thing is, if you go and you see other comedians, it, it's, you know, and ethnicities, I, now typically it, 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 it involves like Sebastian Maniscalco will make fun of Italians because he's Italian. He grew up Italian. Right? Uh, and so you'll see that. Um, but Jewish comedians have, have a long history of, of making jokes about Jewish people and Jewish customs and things of that nature. Uh, so it, it, I, I, I get what you're saying, and I, I just thought that that was interesting. But okay, so let's go. Let me talk to you about now we can get into something a little bit more serious here because there are levels of of anti-Semitism and what we saw, for example, in Charlottesville in 2017 uh, when when um, the Unite the Right march took place and they were marching with torches and they were saying mm-hmm. Jews will not replace us and you heard them saying those kinds of things. I get the sense that as a society here in the United States, when we, we even if you're not black, you can kind of understand the hurt that it must feel for somebody who's black to deal with racism up front. But I don't think that we as a society, because you know the Jewish population in the United States is a very small minority, I think like 2% or something like mm-hmm. that. But tell, explain to people like what it is that you feel. How do you feel when you see something like that? I mean, that's outright. That's not somebody being trying to being saying something anti-Semitic in the sense that they're complimentary. That's just pure out hatred. And explain how that feels when you see that. And what is your opinion on? I know as far as you are in terms of free speech. Like, sure, they have the right to say it, uh, but at the same time, explain how that feels when you when you hear those kinds of words because again that's that's not an illusionary thing that's just straight up hatred of 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 jewish people 
Honestly, I have to say, um, it didn't it didn't feel like much to me. And at first, I thought, oh, this doesn't feel like much to you because you're in shock. Because I think a lot of Jews were in shock. They felt like, oh my god, like mm-hmm. we didn't know the place we live in. You know, Nazis used to march through Skokie, and and that used to be something that the ACLU defended. And I I think like 200 people is just not. It's, it's just not enough of a sample. <laughs> it was turned into something. It was turned into like, I feel like because they were able to connect it with Trump, you know, there's like obviously like a big debate about whether he condemned it or didn't condemn it based on how much of the clip you listen to. Um, but because, he, you know, he did a poor job of convincing people that he wanted to condemn it. Um, and because, you know, we were all in full on Trump derangement, like, it came to symbolize much more than I think it was, which was 200 people. And even now, like, okay, so then after that, you had like the Tree of Life shooting, right? Which was like mm-hmm. horrific, just like 11 Jews martyred at prayer, which, you know, the biggest attack on Jews, the b- biggest mass murder of Jews on American soil. Horrific, horrific, right? But again, you ask yourself, like, is that representative of our relative safety in America compared to other Jews in the world, compared to other Jews through history, compared to other minorities in America. Um, And I think, I mean, it's an open question for me, I think. Um, You know, as somebody with ties to the Orthodox community um, who who, who are never surprised by these things because they live with a sort of constant low-grade, you know, slurs on the street, insults, whatever, the stuff, you know, that people live with who are identifiably different. Um, I I think that this is just an important question to ask. I know a lot of Jews who felt suddenly like, oh, we live in a country that is, you know, fallen, you know, that is not the country we thought it was, um, you know, that, you know, all of Trump's voters hate Jews and hate Blacks and are racist and homophobic and, you know, voted for him because he's, loves to talk like um, the way that he does. I didn't feel that way um, and I don't feel that way. So I, I think it's a really good question that you ask, but I, I think to me, like I just keep coming back to this larger question of you know the common good. And I think when you lose a sense of having one purpose as a nation or one overarching principle that everybody agrees to and that everybody is in this together, what you get is a split. And then the margins of each side are increasingly attracted to conspiracy theories and to marching with tiki torches and saying stupid things about, you know, the great replacement theory or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's like a really unsatisfying answer. I'm trying to, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to like say something more. I'm trying to think if I can say something more like um, more like shebang, you know, like more like. But I think I think it's a, it's more interesting as a question than it is for me to sort of come down on either side as an answer. Um, I, I think also another piece of this is class, like, and it's very hard for me to feel threatened by someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm-hmm. Um, who said, you know, that Rothschilds have lasers in this in space. And so people then quoted her as saying, you know, they're Jewish space lasers. 
which she didn't even remember saying because she didn't know that the Rothschilds were Jewish, right? That's the level of ignorance we're dealing with here. Um, and it's just, it, it just seems to me that the problem with this country is that it's increasingly controlled by people with very high levels of education who have a lot of contempt for people with no education. And I think that that makes it harder for me to feel like threatened on a daily basis by the people in the latter category, even though those are the ones who, you know, increasingly would pick up a gun and, and do a mass shooting. Although what we then saw, you know, in 2018, 2019 was, you know, just a raft of physical attacks against Orthodox Jews in New York by people of color who right. do not belong to a gun culture. You know, we saw, you know, we actually even saw, you know, a shooting in a supermarket where two people were killed and then, you know, a machete attack in Muncie and, um, I guess that's all over the place, and I don't think I answered your question. I'm well, sorry. that's okay. I mean, I think <laughs> I think what I'm trying to express, like, so, like, I have I have an Italian background, I have a Polish background. Uh-huh. Somebody sits there and says something, you know, you, you, you greasy Italian, you stupid Polak, or something like that. I'm I'm almost gonna laugh. It doesn't bother me in a way, or it doesn't hurt me in a way where I think it would hurt if somebody were. And just forgive me for the language here. It called you a kike or something like that. And I'm not sure that people understand the of uh, the pain that comes with that. And 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 this, <laughs> forgive me if I'm sounding, if I'm if I'm if I'm kind of uh, pigeonholing Jewish people, but there's resiliency there that I think that they don't respond to every attack or every insult with the kind of anger or sadness or something that may come that might people might normally think am i right am i on, or am i way off i mean if i am way off you could please tell me well i think when it comes from um people in power it's important to say something and you often see people say, you know speaking up speaking out um we are I think I would agree with you. Like if someone on the street said something anti-Semitic, I don't know that I would feel diminished by that. I, I think I would feel like that told me more about them than it did about me. Okay. Cause I, I feel very, very proud of my heritage and, and proud of, you know, being so tightly knit into the fabric of American society and American history, American life. Um, I think also, though, um, there's a there's sort of a socioeconomic piece to it as well, where this country has been very good to the Jews, mm-hmm. and we don't face the same kinds of systemic um, threats that other minority populations do. So, for example, you know, when something goes wrong, we call the police. You, we could be relatively sure that they're going to be on our side you right. know that's sort of like something that you know black americans don't have right All latino americans don't have that um socioeconomically jews have been very successful in america so what you often see is um anti-semitism coming up as conspiracy theories about that success right um about jewish power people are very uncomfortable with jewish power um, and, and, but, but I think even internally, like you, you look around, you look at other minority populations that just have, don't have the advantages that we have due to a, his, you know, combination of racism and historic contingencies mm-hmm. and cultural issues maybe. Um, so I, I think that that 
impacts it as well. Like, of course, I would love for every person to feel like I do, like when somebody insults you racially, like that it says more about them than it does about you. Hmm. But at the same time, I do think that there is, I'm going to use the dreaded word, a level of privilege involved in, <laughs> in that feeling. Because like I said, like you, um, I mean, specifically the police, like, uh, so just, you know, obviously the data, I'm sure you're familiar with, but maybe your listeners aren't, but, you know, so the data shows that, you know, police officers are not more likely to shoot to kill black men than they are poor white men, mm-hmm. but they are more likely, much more likely to pull over black drivers, to insult black people, to lay hands on them, to shove them up against a wall and to put them in handcuffs. So there, there is, you know, when a, when a black person call, reaches out to a police officer, there is a reasonable expectation that they will be mistreated. And that does something to your, your feeling about your country. That does something to your position in your country, your position vis-a-vis your, your fellow citizens, knowing that, the, that law enforcement has a problem with you and that you might not get fair shakes when you're at your most vulnerable. Like, I just think that that should not be understated and we don't have that as Jews. So, so we can be reasonably um, certain that we will be treated well. So I think that that maybe gives Jews a sense of security in America and a sense of being deeply woven into the fabric of society and a security that gives you a kind of like self-confidence that I feel very strongly it is my duty to try to ensure that every American has access to, and, and right now they don't. Thank you. Uh, that's just a good discussion point there. Uh, let's turn to, let's turn to a more broader discussion about anti-Semitism as it relates to the country, the nation of Israel. Going and, for all the easy questions here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, we've been witness to for the last several years, we know who we're talking about here, members of the House, particularly members of the squad, and uh, narrowing it down even further, two of them in, in, in particular, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. Uh, there was a resolution several years ago. Ilhan Omar had made some comments about Israel, and there were some tweets that she had made about Israel, and... It got so bad that Nancy Pelosi was actually, they were actually going to have a House resolution condemning her for her comments. And by the time the vote actually happened, it was watered down to a resolution condemning hate, uh, which, <laughs> do you really need a resolution condemning hate in America? I mean, is it is it that obvious? Or is it, do you actually need to do that? And... When when I think it was like 23 Republicans voted against it in the House, it was 407 to 23, 23 opposed it were all Republicans. And of course, they were accused of being haters and everything else. But basically, the ones who voted against it said, this isn't this is garbage. This is not what we had discussed. This was supposed to be a condemnation of her comments of things that she said. And we would see it go on and nobody really would ever stand up and say anything, particularly on the Democratic side. And I don't want to make this a, a, an episode that's, that gets too far into the weeds in politics, but it finally took Rashida Tlaib uh, when they were talking about funding for Israel's Iron Dome. And for those that don't know what the Iron Dome is, it is not a offensive mechanism that Israel has. It's a defensive mechanism. Basically, when Hamas is launching rockets into Israel, this system 
destroy some of those rockets before they hit their targets and kill a lot of people, which would then create more opportunity or more necessity, I should say, for Israel to retaliate and more Palestinians get killed. So, But Rashida Tlaib stood up and said they wanted to vote against funding for the Iron Dome, and she used terms like an apartheid state for Israel and said they're, they, they're committing war crimes. And finally, finally, Florida Congressman Ted Deutsch stood on the House floor and said, you know, this is, this is way too far. And he said, he said, quote, I will, uh, what did he say? He said, um, I missed it here. I'll have to cut this out. <laughs> to cut out my, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah, he said, he said, when there's no place on the map for one Jewish state, that's anti-Semitism. And he was pretty, uh, he was pretty angry when he gave that speech because I think he finally gotten fed up. But what is it about the fact that they can get away with this kind of thing, saying these kinds of things over and over and over again with hardly any repercussions? I think you know as well as I do that if there are Republican congressmen saying equivalently racist and bigoted things against black Americans or Latino or, or, or gay and lesbian people, they would be run out. Uh, yeah, they'd be run out of office because it would just be so overwhelmingly people would come down on them. So why, what do you think it is that allows Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and others to just constantly say these things and get away with it each time they do? What is, what, what's the background for that? So I wouldn't, I would uh, push back a little bit against comparing um, what she said about Israel with talking smack about like American minorities because I think if she said, you know, American Jews are perpetuating a genocide, there would have been a lot more pushback. Okay. Um, so to me, and this is, you'll probably disagree with me, but, um, you know, Israel is a sovereign nation. And I think it's really important to, to keep apart criticism, even hyperbolic and untrue you know, disastrously untrue, uh, ignorant criticism of a sovereign nation from criticism or attacks of American citizens. Um, because I think that, you know, sovereignty is really important. <laughs> um, and citizenship is really important. And I'm, you know, I'm an American citizen, I'm an American. And so, you know, when Israel does stuff, it's not really, uh, it's, it's when someone criticizes Israel, they're criticizing a sovereign nation. They're not criticizing me. And it may be a sovereign nation that I think should exist, that I feel attachments to, that I have family in, that I, you know, whatever, my, whatever American Jews, you know, feel towards Israel. But um, I, I do think it's important to keep those things separate. Um. You probably disagree with me, no? No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm. My, my question to you is to. I'm asking you. That's why we're having this conversation. I'm not asking you <laughs> to just like agree with everything I say. Um, I will ask though. I mean, it, okay. So you, you say you shouldn't compare it. Okay. Well, let's let's take that out and let's say, well, if they did this or if somebody did that, and let's just look at the statements and look at what they say. On their face. So the so so the squad frequently 
you know, takes to Twitter or to, you know, the floor, the house floor to say things about Israel that are disastrously wrong, deeply ignorant, and just totally false. Those statements have led to actual physical violence against American Jews. So in May of 2021, when there was a conflagration between Israel and Hamas, and AOC and Ayanna Presley and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, you know, kept coming and, and giving these speeches about how Israel is a genocidal apartheid state. You know, for those two weeks, uh, you know, bands of pro-Palestinian protesters would attack Jews in the streets of American cities and beat them up. And I'm not saying they were acting, you know, on the orders of the Congresswomen, but they got the message that these people are fair game. So I don't think that anything that the Congresswomen said was anti-Semitic, or at least let's say 99% of it was not anti-Semitic. It was just wrong. Um, but it did lead to physical attacks against Jews. So, so by people who clearly didn't care, didn't believe what I think, which is, you know, that it's important to separate your criticism of a sovereign nation with the people of the same ethnicity who happen to be your, you know, co-nationals in America. So I think that in that sense, it's like bad and dangerous and terrible. Um, but I, I, I do think they have the right to be wrong about Israel. The question you're asking is how come they get away with it? Um, I think, I think that, um, Israel has become, like many other issues, um, a sign of where the left is going, which has a lot less to do with Jews and a lot more to do with class. Um, Specifically, I think that the, the Democrats have been leaning into what the economist Thomas Piketty calls a Brahmin left. So it used to be that you had the Democrats who represented, you know, the working class, you know, they represented labor like 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and the Republicans represented the rich. And over the last, you know, 40, 30, 20 years, the Democrats have increasingly been uh, representing the college educated um, and increasingly taking their cues from the highly educated, from the elite educated, and a lot of their uh agenda reflects that commitment. So, for example, um, uh, (laughs) forgiving forgiving $50,000 in student loans, okay? And I promise I'm going to bring this back to Israel and Jews. Mm -hmm. But um, so so you see, forgiving $50,000 in student loans, like who is that for, right? That's not for working class Americans. That's that's for people who have $50,000 in student loans, like people who are highly educated, right? People who have graduate degrees. Um, you know, things like their environmental policies, which often come at the expense of working class jobs and fracking and, and things like that. Um, that, you know, there's just a host of um, policy items that are very much geared towards uh, a highly upwardly mobile meritocratic elite and at the expense of the working class um, free college um, things like wokeness, you know, uh, the whole DEI program. Um, and anti-Zionism is one of those things. So it's one of these ideas like cancel culture, or open borders that was sort of cooked up um, in universities that really does not reflect how working class Americans feel about Israel. 
America is a very, very Zionist country, which is why the politicians are Zionist, right? It's not because they care about Jews. It's because they want to reflect their constituents because they want to get reelected. <laughs> um, and, and instead, you, what you have is this Brahmin left that has assumed um, all of these ideas that are very, very reflective of, you know, the university. And one of those is anti-Zionism. Um, so it's, it's, to me, it's, it's kind of the reason that you don't see more pushback is because the Democrats increasingly are casting their lot with that, you know, tiny upwardly mobile elite at the expense of everybody else. So why would they anger them? They're sort of really leaning into that population. Although the voters themselves, (laughs) as we keep seeing, um, are rejecting it. So that's kind of how I see it. It's part of this, um, this Brahmin leftism that doesn't really reflect where most Americans are at, but it does reflect where one of the parties seems to see its destiny. That's an interesting viewpoint. So what, okay, so then help me out here. Explain, and this is not meant to be, I'm not being, I'm not not challenging you or like, let's see what you could do here, but what, what is it about Israel, this, uh, this small little nation. I remember Howard Stern uh, going off on Roger Waters one time, and he said, "He goes if you took a pin and threw it in a pool, he goes that would represent Israel." Uh, he goes, "It's this tiny little nation in the middle of nowhere." But for some reason, it's this small nation that seems to bring out the ire of within the UN. Uh, I think Israel has received more UN resolutions condemning them for for whatever actions more than many uh, communist dictator states. What is it about Israel that 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 makes it such a lightning rod for criticism? When and correct me if I'm wrong here that it's it's one of the few true democracies in that area. So uh, I think for some people, the answer is because it's full of Jews and people love to hate on Jews. Um, To me, I'm sort of a follower of Hannah Arendt. And so that seems a little bit too facile, like um, it sort of denies Jews any agency, right? If you're Mm going to hate us no matter what we do, then we have no power to act. And I sort of reject that fundamentally, although clearly there are many reasons people come up with to hate us. Um, I would say, you know, there's a street in Belfast, I am told, where one side of the street, everybody's hanging Israeli flags, and the other side of the street, everyone is hanging Palestinian flags. And it's not because these people know anything about the region. It's because they are projecting their own troubles onto this sort of proxy, right? Onto this, like, very, um, very potent symbol of their own feelings about themselves. And I think that's true of America too. You know, like when people talk about Israel, they're often really talking about themselves. And, you know, so so Republicans who love that kind of like pioneering, um, autonomous, you know, self-starter, like, you know, coming out of nothing and bootstrapping, right? That's sort of like their fantasy image. You know, Israel really fits into that. And for the left who sort of, you know, hates, fundamentally hates like the concept, you know, 
the enlightenment ideals of the West right now. And they're very against like ideas like autonomy, you know, and, and they see everything through a power binary that puts like, you know, quote unquote, people of color on the bottom end and quote unquote, white people at the top. And then, you know, they, they, they don't believe that people of color can have any agency in a quote unquote, white supremacist world, right? To them, they look at Israel and they see, you know, a little America, right? They cast the Jews in the role of the white supremacists, even though, you know, 60% of Israelis are people of color. They're, they're, you know, Arab Jews from Arab nations, you know, and, and they say that the Palestinians have no power because they have less power and they erase the thousands and thousands and thousands of civilians who are intentionally murdered by Palestinian terrorists. And, you know, and, and so they, they are able to project their worldview onto, onto Israel as well. And so I, I think it really provides a really sexy, proxy for a lot of the conversations about ourselves. Um, but, but it, to everybody, it just seems like a morality play, like, and it's, it's somehow ripe for projection, even though when you go there, it's like, <laughs> everything looks really different on the ground. Well, then come, let me come back to what um, we've heard AOC and Rashida Tlaib and everything say about because this addressed this point, not even so much in the context of anti-Semitism, but them calling Israel an apartheid state. Yeah. And if and if somebody said to you, again, asking you the questions, and you, um, is it and why not? Oh, that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. Yeah. So um, the real reason that that those um, so first of all, they say, you know, they'll often say Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians. Um and it's so funny because on the one hand, they accuse the Israelis of being, you know, the most powerful and and being, you know, totally evil and able to accomplish all of their goals. But, you know, if they were trying to commit a genocide, they're doing a very poor job of it. You know, in <laughs> fact, they try very, very hard to avoid civilian casualties. Now, you might say that that Gaza is so, so crowded that, um, you know, any 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 rocket there is is bound to hit civilians and thus Israel is not allowed to defend itself. Right. That's a position you'll hear people take. But again, it's like a very morally complex issue. How many rockets, how many Israeli citizens are they supposed to allow to just be hit? Right. Um, so the genocide point, I think, really has no um, real bearing. Um, it's not an apartheid because <laughs> an apartheid is about race. And in Israel, there is what's going on there is actually a national conflict. And the reason it's different to distinguish a racial conflict from a national conflict is because in a racial conflict, you do have a pure aggressor who is purely evil, right? Like in apartheid South Africa or in you know the segregated South, you had a you had state power, you had a state denying civil rights to its own citizens, right? They had no recourse. They were just being purely victimized based on the color of their skin. And that, that, that is just pure evil. And they had no agency. And the, the idea that um, the Palestinians, comparing the Palestinian cause to the struggle for civil rights in America is just so disgustingly offensive to me, to, to people like Dr. King and the, and the nonviolent resistance movement that he helmed, because the Palestinian resistance movement has often been extremely violent and has often targeted civilians very, very intentionally. Like when I was in high school, I was living in Israel and you would get on the bus to go to school and you didn't know if you were, if, if the bus was going to blow up or not, you know, like, wow. and, and, and this was just something you lived with to compare 
the holy sacred struggle for civil rights in America, for equality for Black Americans, to blowing up buses full of school children is so disgusting to me. Um, you know, the, 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 the truth of the matter is, is that Israel's struggle with the Palestinians, it's not even one fight. It's not like two races against each other. It's, it's, it's a national struggle over territory, over land, over borders. Now, that's not to say that Israel is perfect. Israel is committing deep civil rights violations, but it has really three Palestinian problems. There's this extremely punishing blockade of Gaza that has deprived, you know, basically everybody in Gaza of a future and of any hope. And so that has really actually uh, encouraged a lot of the violence that you see there. It has um, a, an occupation, a military occupation in the West Bank. So these are two totally separate areas, right? In the West Bank, there's a military occupation. And there you have Palestinians who are really citizens of no country. So Israel is committing civil rights abuses against those Palestinians because they have no, no recourse, but they have um, frequently resorted to, to violent resistance. And even when the, the resistance is nonviolent, it's, it's complicated. They have a lot less power than Israel, but they don't have no agency. They have turned down offers for a state. Now, yeah, I mean, you could say they were bad offers, you could say that they had fewer choices than Israel, but they didn't have no choices. It's it's not like Black people living in this segregated South. It's just not comparable at all. And then the third Palestinian population is actually Arab Israelis who are citizens who live within Israel proper, who have about, I would say, 95% of the same rights as Israelis. But there again, like, you know, you ha they have a civil rights issue. They should be guaranteeing them 100% of the civil rights. And they are headed in that direction. They're not there yet. Now, each of these three problems, Israel deserves a lot of criticism for, for the ways in which it has, you know, um, um, squelched nonviolent resistance leaders in the West Bank who could have been an alternative to violent resistance, right? It, it, it's, it's made a lot of mistakes. But the idea that this is somehow apartheid, that this is somehow one race, um, you know, completely depriving another race of total civil rights is just completely false. I mean, there are Arabs in the Israeli Knesset, right? I mean, there were no black people in the South African government, right? right. They couldn't be doctors, right? They couldn't, the, the entire health care field in Israel is um, is very, has, has, has Ar the Arab population very overrepresented. And, and by the way, Arab Israelis don't necessarily all identify with the Palestinian cause. They look at other Arab countries, you know, Christian Palestinians, let's say living citizens of Israel, they look at other Arab countries and think, well, I'd much rather live here, right? Christians don't have any rights in these other countries. So it's just a very, very deeply complex situation where, of course, Israel deserves a lot of criticism. Palestinians do as well. Um, but to compare that to to what's happening in America, I think is is really really it's really ugly, and um, it's not just ugly towards Israelis, not just ugly towards Jews. It's ugly towards the, the the populations in America who are still struggling, still still fighting that civil rights battle. That was a really long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I just just to go back to what you said about genocide. Uh, the the just for, in the Palestinian territory, the population in 1960 was 1.1 million. In 2020, it was 5.1 million. So yeah, if they're, if they're committing genocide, like you said, they're doing a lousy job of it. So, all right. So um, let's let's. I'm going to end this by asking a similar question I asked on on other shows. And what? So what is something that people can do to? Uh, 
I don't know if you want to fight back against anti-Semitism or what, what, what is something all of us can do personally, those of us who aren't Jewish, to, to um, I, don't, I don't know how to put this, to better, I don't want to better ourselves, but to take steps in the right direction to, to at least understand what anti-Semitism is. And again, this goes back to what you talked about earlier in the, in the show where you mentioned people had said, Jews are so good with money, which is supposed to be complimentary, but it's actually an anti-Semitic trope. What is something that people can do in their everyday lives, something small that can at least be a seed that would help to plant and and help work towards eliminating anti-Semitism? Oh, you know, Jay, I'm religious, so I I see everything through the same lens. And I I just feel like the best thing you can do is be a good person, be kind to everybody, love your neighbor, make friends with people who disagree with you about things, be a person who's stitching the fabric of American society back together and not a person who's tearing it apart. Don't spend all day on social media. Don't get your information from social media. Don't be obsessed with politics. Um, uh, Go out, um, volunteer, go to church, meet people who you disagree with, respect their viewpoint, um, be a soldier in the war against dehumanization of everybody. Uh, I I, I feel, um, you know, again, like Jews are sort of an the rising anti-Semitism is an epiphenomenon of a much bigger problem that is endangering all of us Americans. And we, sh- to the extent that we can all become foot soldiers in that work of making this the greatest nation on earth again, you know, or for the first time or whatever it is, like that's the thing that's going to help Jews is um, us being good to each other, to everybody, left and right. Like be compassionate in your heart, like tr- try to, even especially when when you're talking to or about somebody you disagree with, like try to think of, um, you know, generous explanations for why they might think the things they think. Like recognize, you know, this the 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 the, the divine spark in every person, and and uh, and try to treat them like that. Okay, there you go. So now, <laughs> one final thing: you have a book out, and so now you get to tell the audience. <laughs> About that book, the title, what it's about, where they can find it, go ahead. The the floor is yours. My book is called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And it's about why the national liberal news media has abandoned the working class and why that presents such a big threat to America. And it's really a populist history of American journalism from a lefty point of view that takes on um, the current reigning liberal discourse that's very much about race, a kind of moral panic around race. And I argue that the media has been mainstreaming a culture war around issues like cancel culture and open borders and wokeness and anti-Zionism, and that this really comes from an unconscious desire to obscure the real chasm in America, which is around class, and that that chasm is getting wider and wider, and it threatens us all because we're turning into an oligarchy that's led by the elites on both sides. So um, if this sounds like your jam, uh, buy my book, and uh, I'd love to hear from you um, if you like it. There you go. We'll make sure to put links in the show notes for that. Uh, <clears throat> it should. Be, I guess I'm one of those people that's turning the country into an oligarchy. Actually, I got called on Twitter. Somebody <laughs> called me in. Someone called me an oligarch apologist. 
<laughs> well, you, yes, you, you replied to some tweet of mine and I was sure you were on my side, but then it turned out you weren't because you're an anti-populist and you're trying, see, I'm trying to get all of the right wing or all of the conservatives onto my side and be like, Hey, I'm willing to be, you know, conservative socially. If you'll follow me, you know, the, down the populist economic road. And you're like, stop taking my people away from the free market where they belong. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> All right. So, Bhaya Unger Sargon, thank you so much for being on Closer Consideration. I appreciate it. Oh, my God. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh-huh.